Welcome to the January 18th, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick summary of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. One of the new articles you'll find reports a cohort study that found that patients on an osteoporosis drug holiday after three or more years of taking resendronate were at slightly higher risk for hip fractures than patients taking a drug holiday from alendronate. However, it's very important to recognize that the overall risk of hip fracture during a drug holiday was low in both groups. Resendronate and alendronate are common oral bisphosphonates prescribed to patients with osteoporosis. These bisphosphonates bind to bone and continue to affect bone turnover for extended periods, even after therapy discontinuation. Current guidelines recommend stopping these medications after three to five years due to both the strength of these bisphosphonate bonds and possible adverse events. Researchers from Brown University School of Public Health and the University of Toronto studied administrative health record data from patients in Ontario, Canada, who had taken alendronate or resendronate for at least three years and then had a drug holiday to examine the comparative risk of hip fracture during drug holidays. Researchers excluded people who had a fracture or entered a nursing home very shortly after treatment was stopped to avoid including people who were stopping therapy due to declining health rather than because of a drug holiday. After conducting a propensity score match cohort analysis, the authors found that the risk for hip fracture was very low overall, but slightly higher among resendronate users than alendronate users during the drug holiday. 12.4 fractures per 1,000 patient years for resendronate versus 10.6 per 1,000 patient years for alendronate. The difference in hip fracture also did not appear until two years after the drug holiday period started. The authors say that further research should examine when to start or restart therapy based on length and type of treatment, patient characteristics, and relative risk of hip fracture. Whether to consider race and tools to estimate kidney function and predict risk for kidney failure is a topic of much current discussion. The next article helps to inform this discussion. The article reports an observational cohort study that found that prediction of end-stage kidney disease within two years performed similarly regardless of which estimated glomerular filtration rate equation was used. However, the four-variable kidney failure risk equation, which includes age, sex, estimated glomerular filtration rate, and urinary albumin to creatinine ratio but does not consider rate, showed better sensitivity and specificity compared with estimated glomerular filtration rate alone. The authors note that the equation is also easy to implement in clinical settings. Glomerular filtration rate is used to classify stages of chronic kidney disease, determine transplant eligibility, and referrals for dialysis. Therefore, the equation chosen to estimate glomerular filtration rate can affect clinical decisions and patient management. Equations used to determine estimated glomerular filtration rate in clinical settings consider a combination of endogenous filtration markers and patient characteristics, sometimes including race. But new equations without race adjustment were released in 2021 by the Chronic Kidney Disease Epidemiology Collaboration, known as CKD-EPI, to minimize potential racial inequities in healthcare delivery. The impact of removing race adjustment on prediction of end-stage kidney disease is unclear. Researchers from Tulane University used data from the Chronic Renal Insufficiency Cohort Study for 3,873 participants with chronic kidney disease to compare end-stage kidney disease prediction performance of different estimated glomerular filtration rate equations. 
End-stage kidney disease was defined as initiation of dialysis or transplantation. Estimated glomerular filtration rate was calculated using five CKD epi equations based on serum creatinine and or cystatin C with or without race adjustment. The predicted two-year risk for end-stage kidney disease was calculated using the four-variable kidney failure risk equation. The authors found that two-year end-stage kidney disease risk prediction performance was similar regardless of which estimated glomerular filtration rate equation was used. However, the four-variable kidney failure risk equation showed better sensitivity and specificity compared with estimated glomerular filtration rate alone, and a kidney failure risk equation score greater than 20% could be used to indicate preparation for kidney replacement therapy. The researchers say their findings support the National Kidney Foundation and American Society of Nephrology Task Force recommendations for assessing end-stage kidney disease risk in clinical practice using new estimated glomerular filtration rate equations that did not consider race. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Akinlolu Ojo from University of Michigan writes, quote, these enduring kidney health inequities in people of black race have been with us for decades and the ever-filled tokenism of revisions to the estimated glomerular filtration rate estimating equations will not have any material significant effect on kidney health inequities experienced by black patients with chronic kidney disease today, tomorrow, or a decade from now, even with the universal adoption of the new CKD epicreatinine equations. The solutions and the productive target of efforts to achieve racial equity in kidney health lie in improving our health care and public health systems, not in the fine-tuning of the estimating equations for glomerular filtration rate, nor in validating kidney failure risk estimating scoring with or without the refit CKD equation, end quote. Next is a case series that describes antibody response after a fourth dose of an mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccine in kidney transplant recipients who did not respond adequately to the three initial doses. Researchers from University Hospital of Strasbourg studied 92 kidney transplant recipients at three independent French university hospitals to investigate whether a fourth dose of an mRNA-based anti-SARS-CoV-2 vaccine would increase anti-spike IgG titers in kidney transplant recipients who showed a weak serologic response after three doses. The patients who had low anti-spike IgG titers one month after third dose of vaccine were given a fourth dose of mRNA vaccine and then measurement of the anti-spike IgG titers were taken two to six weeks later. The researchers found no safety concerns with the fourth dose and noted that after a median of 29 days, Median anti-spike IgG levels increased significantly, suggesting that a fourth dose of vaccine may be warranted in these patients. Also new is this month's In the Clinic Review. The topic is opioid use disorder. Opioid use disorder is a chronic relapsing disease characterized by loss of control using opioids, compulsive use, and continued use despite harms. Untreated opioid use disorder is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Buprenorphine and methadone reduce fatal and non-fatal opioid overdose and infectious complications of opioid use disorder and are first-line treatment options. Physicians have an important role to play in diagnosing opioid use disorder and its comorbidities, offering evidence-based treatment, and delivering overdose prevention and other harm reduction services to people who continue to use opioids. This in the clinic review provides information to help physicians provide such care.
And on January 18th, Annals published two American College of Physicians clinical guidelines on diverticulitis and the systematic reviews that provide the evidence that inform the guideline recommendations. According to the American College of Physicians, uncomplicated diverticulitis can be treated in an outpatient setting without antibiotics. The guidelines are based on the best available evidence on the clinical benefits and harms, test accuracy, patient values and preferences, and consideration of cost. The clinical guidelines also include input from two public members of the organization's Clinical Guidelines Committee and a seven-member Clinical Guidelines Committee public panel who provide layperson perspectives on values and preferences. Uncomplicated diverticulitis refers to localized inflammation, whereas complicated diverticulitis refers to inflammation associated with an abscess, fistula, obstruction, bleeding, or perforation. The American College of Physicians suggests that clinicians use abdominal CT imaging for patients when there is diagnostic uncertainty in a patient with suspected acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis, manage most patients with acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis in an outpatient setting, and initially manage select patients with acute uncomplicated left-sided colonic diverticulitis without antibiotics. The new evidence-based guidelines are based on systematic reviews conducted by the Brown Evidence-Based Practice Center, funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. The researchers extracted study data and risk of bias on the diagnosis, treatment, and management of acute left-sided diverticulitis, and all studies were accessed for quality. Annals knows that many busy clinicians find it challenging to find the time to read lengthy systematic reviews, so we've developed a brief video that quickly summarizes the review on antibiotic treatment for acute diverticulitis. You can find it with the review on annals.org. According to the ACP, these clinical guidelines are important because diverticulitis is increasingly common in patients seen by internal medicine physicians. ACP's advice addresses the best course of treatment for patients focused on management in an outpatient setting with fewer drugs to help improve a condition that can often result in quality of life issues and can lead to more serious conditions if not treated appropriately. Other new material on Annals.org includes the latest episode of Annals Consult Guys. In this episode, the Consult Guys address the question, is there any benefit to using spinal versus general anesthesia for patients undergoing hip fracture repair? There's also an Annals for Hospitals commentary on the importance of discharging patients hospitalized for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction on guideline-based therapy rather than waiting for this to be done during a follow-up visit. And you'll also find two new episodes of the Annals on Call podcast, one on bleeding risk during extended anticoagulation for unprovoked venous thromboembolism, and the other on the inclusion of race equations to estimate glomerular filtration rate. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you will go to annals.org for some of the new material I've highlighted. Stay well, and please return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.